from the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually engaged. In those instances, I'm always reading from the Badgers. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. All right, so today on the podcast, we're happy to have Professor David Cannon with us. David, as some of you know, has won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his quite lengthy career. Every week, students come into advising, and Amy, I think you can attest to this. They come to declare political science and tell us that one of the reasons is that they love Professor Cannon's 104 PS Introduction to American Politics course so much. His upper division courses on the Congress and the presidency are among students' favorites as well. Professor Cannon is the author of a ton of peer-reviewed research articles and several books, including Race, Redistricting and Representation, The Dysfunctional Congress, The Individual Roots of an Institutional Dilemma, Actors, Athletes, and Astronauts, Political Amateurs in the U.S. Congress, and widely used textbooks such as American Politics Today. We're excited to get into Professor Cannon's career in teaching, research, writing, and want to dive into the general state of politics a bit in Wisconsin and maybe around the nation. So thanks for being with us here today. Good to be with you, Josh. So maybe we'll start with a little background warm-up questions. Where'd you grow up? What was life like for you as a high school student? Well, so I grew up in Tarot, Indiana, and okay. I it was a, I was in a pretty political family. I would say that always was you know following politics. Okay. I, I remember when I was a kid growing up, we usually would have the you know the the national news on on TV mm. and would talk about politics. One of my earliest political memories uh, must have been about nine years old, I guess, uh, doing door to door leafleting for okay. Hubert Humphrey <laughs> when he was running for president in 1968. And we actually my first dog's name was Hubert. Uh, oh my God. So my, my one of my mom's heroes was Hubert Humphrey. And so, yeah, she put me to work like handing out leaflets when I was nine years old. Were you so. like in the wagon behind <clears throat> just like dropping leaflets? No, I was doing the work. I, mean, I was out the... there like, you know, stuffing the, <laughs> the stuffing the doors with the, the leaflets. Yeah, that's definitely one of my, my first political memories. That's so. awesome. So were you, I feel like from a young age then, you kind of had this political mindset in mind. Did you at any time think of other careers that you might pursue at this young age? Well, yeah, I, in high school, I I don't think I was really too focused on you know thinking much about what my career was going to be. Yeah, I was like sure. a lot of teenagers. The main thing I did when I was uh, in high school was play tennis. Like okay. I was like on the tennis court, you know, every hour that I had a spare time, and and so yeah, I think when I was probably age. 13 to 17, my desire was to be a professional tennis player. Okay. So yeah, that was, but that's what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. Great. Okay. So in through high school, you, I guess, realized that tennis wasn't going to pan out. And so politics came into an idea or something you might like to pursue as an undergrad. Right. So you did your undergraduate work at Indiana University. What majors did you have there? So it was political science and economics. Okay. And so it was really a nice combination, I think, you know, having the, the politics, which is something I, again, had always been interested in. But then economics was a, a good, uh, you know, so, somewhat more uh, sort of technical in some ways. So mm-hmm. I got, you know, a little bit more on the, the method side sure. from economics. Um, but it, in terms of policy, too, I think the two kind of go together nicely. Uh, and But while I was an undergrad, actually, for a lot of my 
time, really, I think it didn't change till my senior year, maybe. I thought I was going to law school, mm. uh, the way a lot of, of people, mm-hmm. you know, political science uh, folks are, are pre-law. And my sister had gone to law school. Okay. We had a lot of, you know, family friends who were lawyers. So, yeah. Okay, well, it just seemed like the sort of normal thing okay. to do. But then I started talking <laughs> to, to more people about their careers yeah. who were lawyers and discovered that a lot of lawyers that I talked to really weren't too happy with their careers. Yeah. Like they just... It were end up doing things that they didn't either agree with philosophically mm-hmm. or just a lot of the work mm-hmm. ended up being kind of boring. And mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, well, maybe I should think about something else. And I started talking to some of my professors. And and my dad was a professor uh, in not in a totally different area in the sure. humanities. Uh, but I sort of knew what the academic life, you know, what that career was like at sure. least. And so I thought, okay, maybe grad school and you know being a professor would yeah, be yeah. preferable to going to law school. And I'm really glad I made that decision. Now that the decision was made not to go to law school, um, PhD in Minnesota, did you get a master's along the way? Yeah. So I I entered the PhD program at at Minnesota and they had a joint degree program with the Humphrey School. And I, because of my interest in policy and the background economics, it was kind of a natural fit because in policy programs, like our La Follette School here is the same way. A lot of the classes you take will be in economics and Mm. the rest will be more political science. So it seemed like a a good fit for my background. And so, yeah, I got the, the master's at the Humphrey School, but it was kind of on the way to the, the PhD uh, in poli-sci at Minnesota. Sure. <clears throat> so before we get too far, when talking about Minnesota, rumor has it that you sold beer and sodas or popcorn at Vikings and Twin Games during grad school in the Twin Cities. Is that true? Yeah, it is. In fact, it was the best part-time job ever. And it was uh, just beer. <laughs> okay. uh, and it was, and it was, in fact, it was Twins, Vikings, Gophers football, even the occasional like monster truck show, everything that was at the, the Metrodome. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and it was such a fantastic part-time job because it was all weekend and evening hours you yeah. know, for baseball oh, sure. games. Football okay. games were always mm-hmm. you know, on Sunday or Saturday. So it didn't interfere with you know, classes at all. And it was just you know, a few hours a week for, yeah. for the games. And you didn't have to work all the games. Okay. I, especially for the Twins, I ended up working probably about half the games. But the, the hourly wage was fantastic. I mean, for a good baseball game, I'd make upwards of $100. Football games, nice. like 150 And this is a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, so it's yeah. like probably two to three times that today. So you're thinking, you know, two, three hundred dollars for yeah. going to a game. And I would like, get to see the game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was just, just yeah. like, wow, what a perfect job. So you graduated from the University of Minnesota with a PhD, and then you went to Duke and did not cheer for the Blue Devils. Or did you become a Blue Devils fan? Well, yeah. yeah what's the kinda, story there? Yeah, this is yeah, kind of sad part of dark, dark past here. <laughs> I actually did root for the Blue uh, Devils. Okay. They finally wore me down. But, you know, it's just, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's you're like, surrounded by it all the time. Yep, you eventually yep. just have to. You can't wear yep. the, the stripes anymore yep. for the Hoosiers. You got to. Yeah. Did you basketball. think about selling beer while you were uh, in the stadium? <laughs> no, I didn't, didn't do that. But, yeah. I, the odd part was I did sort of drop my Duke loyalties as mm. soon as I left. Like, it was just. Okay. Because I always felt kind of guilty. Guilty about it, you know, and so as soon as I wasn't at Duke, yeah, no more rooting You're for Duke. You're a fair weather friend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's maybe jump into some research questions. Let's talk a little bit about some of your interests more generally and broadly, and then maybe we'll dive into a couple of books that you've written. Do you remember a time in your career when you found a subfield that you were very interested in and have stuck with uh, a good portion of your career? Yeah, so it's interesting how so research ideas you know come about. Like, yeah. where do you get an idea for a book or some topic? Sure, or, right. Or indeed, a whole you know, sort of commitment to a, a subfield. And I do have one 
one experience like that that I can think of that yeah. really did help shape a, a research trajectory for me that I stuck with for a good like 15 years at least. And that's this topic of racial representation. Mm -hmm. And I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was, I was at, at Duke. And there was this Supreme Court case called Shaw versus Reno that had to do with the black majority districts that were drawn to help elect African-American members to the U.S. House of Representatives. And the, the decision talked about how the these districts were bad because they promoted racial separation. Mm. And Sandra Day O'Connor in the majority opinion had some very strong language where yeah. she even likened them to political apartheid in South Africa, like oh, wow. really yeah. like condemning. Pretty like, this far. Is, yeah, pretty harsh, pretty, pretty strong language. And when I saw that opinion, it just wasn't consistent mm. with what I was seeing on the ground in North Carolina, mm. where the politicians who were elected in two of these new black majority districts mm -hmm. weren't doing that. They mm. were actually reaching out to make more biracial yeah. coalitions, yeah. very different than this politics of separation the Supreme Court was talking. Okay. About. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is like generally true. Yeah. And I wonder like what impact these new black majority districts really have had on racial sure. representation. So I, I spent the next five or six years kind of researching that. And it was the book then that you cited, the, the race and representation mm -hmm. book. And it really did show the Supreme Court's view of this was wrong. Like they, they had misunderstood the underlying nature of representation in these, these districts. And it was a really interesting project to, to be involved in. And I've mm -hmm. continued to work on related uh, questions since then. What if we bring it back down to Wisconsin? It has drawn some recent attention uh, as Governor Evers has proposed creating a redistricting advisory commission that would seek to make redistricting nonpartisan. Right. Can you give us maybe some context of the current political battle that's going on right now in Wisconsin? Right. Yeah. So Wisconsin has been kind of ground zero of the redistricting battles right now. In fact, our case that went to the Supreme Court, the Gill versus Whitford, mm -hmm. was the first time that a three-judge federal panel the sort of level right below the Supreme Court, had ruled that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional. Mm. It's the first time a federal court had reached that conclusion. And when it made it, that case made its way to the Supreme Court, the court kicked it back to the lower court on some more narrow technical grounds of standing, saying that the plaintiffs in the case uh, you know, didn't necessarily have standing if they weren't in a district that was affected. Right. So they had some specific kind of evidence they wanted to see. So it got kicked back to the, the lower court again. And it's, it's uh, right now... In a bit of a holding pattern, but mm -hmm. will be retried uh, starting in July. And so, yeah, Wisconsin has been very much kind of front and center in these debates of like how political parties manipulate district lines for their partisan gain. And Wisconsin was one of the most dramatic examples of that kind of a, a gerrymander in this this last decade, um, where the Republicans, when they gained control of the uh, mm -hmm. both the Assembly and the Senate and the governorship in 2010, redrew yeah. lines to uh, to really help the Republican Party. And so that's been the, the subject of this, uh, this series of, of court cases. And so Evers' latest proposal to try to take the redistricting out of the hands of yeah. politicians and give it to the voters is something we've seen happen around the country. There were, uh, in this last midterm elections in November 2018, there were five states that adopted this nonpartisan process for drawing lines. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most dramatic examples was in Michigan, uh, where the a movement, a grassroots movement called Citizens Not Politicians, managed to get this on the ballot and get it passed just in in less than two years. So the whole process wow. uh, went from like not existing at all to actually you know, being the, the law of the state mm -hmm. uh, within two years. Now, that couldn't happen in Wisconsin because we don't have that same sure. initiative process. Uh, but there is more public pressure now being brought to bear on this question, I think, where um, groups like the League of Women Voters and others are getting involved to try to uh, convince the state legislatures is something we should do here in Wisconsin as well. 
And with talking about election and doing election research, you work with Barry Burden, who's actually a guest, our first guest on 1050 Bascom, and he works as the director of the Elections Research Center. Can you maybe talk about what type of work you do with him or with the center? Yeah, so yeah, the Election Research Center has been a great addition to our department that they uh, we've been sponsoring uh, conferences where after you know, each election we'll bring in national experts, journalists from around the country. And the couple conferences we've had on so analyzing elections have had really good um, public response. Like a couple hundred people will, will come to the panels and I think it's been a really good outreach part of, yeah. of uh, the university uh, sort of meeting the university's mission to sort of help uh, with the Wisconsin idea uh, of educating the broader public. And so that's that's one really important part of what the Election Research Center does. But also just internally, it mm-hmm. helps um, support research by graduate students and faculty yeah. doing research on, on elections. Uh, and it's it's been yeah, really a good new resource for the department. Yeah. So I'm curious, you work with Professor Barry Burden uh, in the center. How often do faculty in the department work with each other. I, I think mm-hmm. you publish with Ken Mayer once in a while. Right. Yep. What type of stuff do you work on with him? Yeah, so it's pretty common for faculty members to uh, co-author with their colleagues mm-hmm. and, and with graduate students as well, just with shared interests. Uh, so yeah, Barry and Ken and I and, and our colleague at uh, Don Moynihan have uh, published quite a few articles on different aspects of election administration, election laws. Um, Ken and I have the, the book on the dysfunctional Congress that we okay. did uh, a while ago, and we're uh, supposed to be working on a second edition of that, but it keeps on getting uh, put to the back burner a bit. But yeah, it really is great uh, working with your colleagues on, on research yeah. because it's a way that you can you know have, I think, sort of better ideas emerge yeah. by, by having people you know, share their, their work. And one thing that's really great about our department is it's it's such a, a collegial place where you know people get along, and, yeah. and having these co-author relationships is just a, a way of even mm-hmm. deepening those mm-hmm. ties. So, when talking about uh, the Election Research Center, you have also written an article titled "Election Laws, Mobilization, and Turnout: The Unanticipated Consequences of Election Reform." What are those unanticipated consequences? Yeah, this article actually got a, a fair amount of national attention because it did have the pretty surprising conclusion that early voting by itself actually hurts turnout. Mm-hmm. And this is really counterintuitive because yeah, it definitely. seems like, hey, anything that makes voting <laughs> right. easier should make turnout go up. Yeah. And like, so how can that make turnout go down? Um, but the it, it does have the important qualification of early voting by itself. And, mm-hmm. and so that means like the, so this would be in a state that has like a voter registration requirement with a, a deadline of say, you know, October 15th to be registered to vote and the election day is then, you know, early in November. And then early voting would happen after that deadline. And so if you took advantage of early voting, you had to already be registered. So you couldn't have like forgotten about registering and then, oh, yes. I'll go early vote. Okay. Like here in Wisconsin, you can register when you early vote. Mm-hmm. And when that's the case, and you can have what we called one-stop shopping, yep. of being able to vote and register at the same time, mm-hmm. then that does increase okay. turnout. But if you have that obstacle of a separate registration deadline, that's when early voting actually decreases mm-hmm. turnout compared to, to states that either don't have early voting mm-hmm. alone or the states that have the, the one-stop shopping. And it, it makes sense if you think about it because – if you have a state where it's 
just a convenience to voters in terms of the timing of the vote, but it's not actually helping them get registered to vote, mm-hmm. then all it's doing is is making it easier for the voting pools can be voting anyway. And so in some states, like 30 to 40 percent of the voters will take advantage of early mm-hmm. voting. And what that does then, it, it depresses the sort of stimulative impact of Election Day itself. And so the more marginal voters gotcha who you know, are kind of on the fence about voting, they don't pay attention to politics mm-hmm. that much, all of a sudden there's not that much campaign activity gotcha. around the election day because so many people have voted already. Like so the number of TV ads go down, like the get out the vote efforts aren't quite as intense as in states that have everyone voting on, on election day. And so that's why early voting by itself really does have the counterintuitive effect of actually depressing turnout. Mm-hmm. And if you want to increase turnout, the trick is to have the one-stop shopping gotcha. of registration and voting at the same time. So maybe we come back and talk about books a little bit further to get another look into the type of research you do, particularly on Congress. This first title is called The Dysfunctional Congress, The Individual Roots of an Institutional Dilemma, which you wrote with Ken Mayer. Mm -hmm. What is that? What's the genesis of that book? What main questions, data, what findings did you reveal in this book? We can all see that Congress works really well together these days. (laughs) So, so, I mean, but actually, though, I think we talked with Ellie and she said, you know, looking back on history, Congress, we're not throwing things at each other across the aisle right now. So what is your, how do you see Congress right now? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And in fact, this has been one problem that Ken and I have had in working on the second edition is that for, I don't know, like several years now, we've been trying to, you know, get a, the second edition of this out. But every time we make some progress, something else crazy mm-hmm. happens in Congress. It's like, okay, this is like yeah. a new great example of how dysfunctional Congress <laughs> yeah. is. So we have to start over <laughs> yeah, and rewrite yeah. that part. And so the the extreme dysfunction we're seeing in Congress right now uh, has, has made it harder to, mm-hmm. to, to finish the, the second edition of the of the book. Um, so, so yeah, Congress has changed, though, in a, an important way since we wrote the first edition. Mm-hmm. And that is that a lot of the root of the dysfunction now is the partisan polarization mm-hmm. in the way that it wasn't so true when we wrote it. There was more this district-based pork barrel politics was kind of the source gotcha. of the dysfunction. So it's a, it's a different angle on the dysfunction mm-hmm. that is rooted more in this partisan polarization. Gotcha. When I, I've, I've given a, a lot of talks on this question of, of polarization, and, and one thing I always present to, to give a little bit of ray of hope that this could change mm-hmm. is that you look at Congress and it is extremely polarized, like the most polarized yeah. it's ever been yeah. in American history. Like the two parties are separate and distinct and fairly homogenous, like yep. apart from mm-hmm. each other, whereas there used to be overlapping between yeah. the two. And so that's the like the bad news. Well, the good news is that the American people themselves aren't that way, mm. that we tend to still be pretty moderate and centrist on a lot of our policy views. And and so if the American public is more centrist and moderate and the mm-hmm. parties are over here, you figure that eventually, you know, that there's got to be some way to, to pull those parties to, to more of the uh, the moderate kind of centrist positions. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a, a lot in play here, including the way the media has changed that, you yes, know, we... Definitely. You know, so much more now with you know the cable news being bifurcated into Fox and MSNBC, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. online stuff because of search algorithms. You know, sending us into our little ideological silos on the internet and just only reading things that we agree with. So there, there are some major obstacles there in terms of like overcoming uh, polarization at the mass level as well. But the fact that in terms of, of policy views, you know, the most Americans tend to be much more centrist than our, our leaders gives me some hope that eventually we'll be able to like make the parties not quite as polarized. Maybe you talk on just one more of your books. Um, and this kind of focuses on Congress and the presidency. 
Um, it's titled Actors, Athletes, and Astronauts, Political Amateurs in the United States Congress. Can we just talk about that research quickly? Uh, how do you feel about amateurs in the Oval Office? Uh, okay, right. So that's kind of a relatively uh, new angle on this. Because yeah. you know, my, my work you know, focused on the people coming into Congress without previous mm-hmm. experience and finding a range of people who you know still had the normal career path of mm-hmm. serving in state legislature and sure. working way up to the House and then up to the Senate. Um, but then you had quite a few people like our Herb Cole for many years mm-hmm. here in Wisconsin or Ron Johnson now yeah. who you know come into the Senate with no previous experience. And so the motivating question in that research was trying to figure out, you know do these people behave any differently once mm-hmm. they're in Congress? Yeah, what was their path to Congress? How did that look? Um, and I, it, you know, it ends, it's a, a fairly nuanced picture in terms of being different styles of, of amateurs that some do resemble their experienced counterparts. Others mm-hmm. are quite different. Okay. Um, but your question on the, the Oval Office and, and the president, this is something that you know clearly is very unusual. And, mm-hmm. and Donald Trump has definitely broken the mold in sure. terms of many aspects of the, of the presidency. Um, and this is one that it would you know to have someone you know come into office with really no previous political experience mm-hmm. you'd have to go back to you know the only other sort of comparable things at all would be someone like Dwight D Eisenhower but mm-hmm. he obviously as a top general yeah. had at least experience in the public realm the sure. way that Trump didn't so we had Howard Schreber on the podcast that wrote an article for the Huffington Post um, that said in 2015 and 16 when Trump was elected some of his base had the mindset of well what the hell do we have to lose anyway and that seems like so then we should get an outsider and that doesn't have a huge background in politics and that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Do you see that mindset when electing senators and congressmen? Yeah, no, I think okay. there is this outsider element mm-hmm. that, you know, in this moment we're in right now of kind of a anti-Washington, mm-hmm. anti-politician kind of mood of the country that definitely played into helping get Donald Trump elected. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Also does help uh, some of these amateurs get elected to Congress with the, the kind of outsider uh, rhetoric that I, I'm not a career politician. I'm you know more, I understand you because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not one of them. And and it's, it's a pretty powerful message sometime to run as an outsider. Or sometimes like with Herb Cole, his tagline always was, nobody's senator but yours. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, okay. because he was not a politician and because he was wealthy and could fund his own ah. campaigns and didn't take money from special right. interests. Okay. Yeah, you know, I can't be bought. Like yes, I'm yes. I've got my own money. I don't yeah. have to rely on these special interest uh, uh, dollars to get me elected. So so that's again can be kind of a powerful message as well for these amateurs is that they get some more instant credibility with voters who mm-hmm. don't like politicians. Do you think that that is a viable answer to voters that are fed up with the run-of-the-mill politics um, in terms of, well, I'm sick of what's going on, so let's turn in and find somebody that's doesn't have much experience? Or do you think there's a better answer for them to rally behind? And Yeah, so it, it, the answer ends up being actually kind of complicated in terms of, you know, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, you do get the amateurs who kind of crash and burn. Like, mm-hmm. they just weren't cut out for yes. politics. And, and like the probably the best example, that's not from Congress, but from our neighboring state of Minnesota, when they elected a professional wrestler to be their governor, <laughs> yeah. you know, Jesse Ventura. <laughs> right. And it was a disaster. Like he just, yeah. you know, it really was not meant for that job. And it, and it was, I think, again, the voters just saying, hey, I want something different. Mm-hmm. This is kind of cool to elect a professional wrestler. Well, it's not a good idea. Yeah. We got the uh, governor in California. Well, it's true. <laughs> the governor actually did a little better. I mean, I think our Arnold, you know, I think he did grow into the job a little bit more yeah, yeah. compared to, to Jesse Ventura. Sure. Um, but 
but yeah, I think so. So it can really backfire sure. uh, you know, if the the amateur who's elected just really isn't up to the task. Mm-hmm. But then you you find some others who end up being pretty successful, having you know fairly long careers, mm-hmm. who just were kind of ambitious and wanted to kind of start at the top. Uh, and and so it isn't necessarily someone like a you know Bill Bradley on the Democratic side, a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a basketball player in the NBA who served like 18 years yeah. in the Senate was very successful, or on the Republican side, someone like Jack Kemp who was a you know quarterback for the Buffalo Bills and ends up being both a House member and a, a secretary in the Bush administration. So you know the, you can see people who kind of grow into the job and are quite successful, but then also those who kind of crash and burn. All right, let's pivot. One more time to talk about teaching. I know we brought it up early in the podcast, but maybe we'll finish up with a couple questions. You teach, like we said, a variety of courses in terms of content, size, upper division, lower division, honors. So many students admire your classes. Amy, as an undergraduate advisor, hears this all the time. I even hear it in the, in the department office. How do you keep things fresh and interesting for your students, but also for yourself? Um, in the right. classroom. I think one of the most gratifying things uh, about uh, being a teacher is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, yeah, I used to think politics was boring and I yeah. just, I never followed it, but yeah. now I'm, I'm really paying attention. And they'll tell me things like, you know, now I, I go back to like the Thanksgiving family dinner and I can engage with my uncle Ralph about what's happening <laughs> yeah, in, awesome. in Washington. And, and so that just makes me feel so good yeah. that, that, you know, students are, are sort of taking the things they learn from class to back to their everyday yeah. lives. Yeah. And occasionally I'll have you know, students come up to me even when I'm voting and will say, hey, I had you in class like 10 years ago mm-hmm. and, and you're one of four classes, the reason I'm here voting today is like, wow, yeah. that's like the best kind of feedback you could possibly that's have great. to that's great. Um, you know, help someone really get involved in politics in that way that they actually you know, start paying attention and voting. Yeah. So what about teaching in such polarized times? I know that a lot of your research focuses on or, or pulls from empirical data. Mm-hmm. What's it like for someone who studies the science of politics to be living in a uh, less fact-based society. Right. Yeah, so two two responses there. One is it definitely is harder now, especially mm-hmm. when I teach the class on the presidency um, yeah. because it is, you know, Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure. Uh, and so that it does make teaching that, that class more difficult than it, than it used to be um, just for that, that simple reason. But I think what makes it easier is my basic approach that I've maintained uh, throughout my teaching, which is that, since the very first time I taught the big intro class, and I've done this with my upper-level classes as well, it's my goal that by the end of the semester, they don't know if I'm a Democrat or Republican. And so yeah. I, I try. My, my mantra is that I don't want to, to teach you what to think. I want to help teach you how to think. Exactly. And, and so I always try to present you know, both sides of any given policy issue. And I, I focus more on, again, the fact-based knowledge mm-hmm. from the social sciences that you know, tends not to have uh, you know, a, a partisan ax to grind. It's just trying to figure out how things work. Yeah, and yeah. so I make the argument, in fact, that that type of objective knowledge is even more important today than it was three years ago mm-hmm. because of this, you know, all of the talking about fake news and mm-hmm. you know, alternative facts and, you yeah. know, the, and saying that objective truth you know, it doesn't exist. Well, yeah. it does exist, and it's our job, I think, as professors, as political scientists, to to help inform politics in that ob- objective way. And doing it through the classroom is is just a really important place to start. I think. So maybe we finish with just a couple of fun questions. We talked about beer in mm. your brief stint of 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 selling beer and right. almost getting hit by a foul ball. <laughs> um, 
we've actually talked personally before just about our love of beer. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. So you're yeah. a beer guy. What, yeah. what? What kind of beer do you drink? Uh, well, I I pretty much like most uh, you know good you know craft beers. I, I tend more to both the the really hoppy like IPAs, okay. uh, but also I like you know the darker stouts and and porters as, okay. as well. Uh, the beer scene in Madison has just changed so dramatically uh, in the last you know five years even. I mean the number of you know really good places to to go get a, a local pint is just unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite Christmas presents I got this Christmas was a beer passport. Do you oh, have this yet? You need to get I, one. I've if you don't definitely know. heard of it. Oh though. yeah, the beer passport is awesome. It, it's like this. It looks like a passport, okay. and you t- it's good for about maybe twenty different places around town. You yeah. go, you get a free pint, okay. uh, and I can't remember. I don't know how much it costs. Yeah, present, yeah, yeah. but I'm sure it probably costs a nominal amount, but you get a free pint mm-hmm. at these like 20 different places. And I'm working my way through. I, my awesome. goal is to get done by the end of the year. To, Do you have to go through customs before? Yeah, uh, don't have to uh, even go through customs. <laughs> okay. You just order your beer and hand them your passport. It's great. So you're not uh, you're not like the Bud Light, Miller Light? Oh, my God. The, the, no. What you used to sell in the stadiums? Steer clear? Yeah, steer clear of... of Very yeah. good. All right, so what do you say we uh, get our coats on and go to the bottom of Bascom and take a walk up Bascom? Sounds good. Cool. All right. All right, David, we are now standing at the bottom of Bascom Hill with our coats on. What do you say we, we take a walk up Bascom? All right, sounds good. All right, we'll get you started here. Uh, favorite book as a kid? Believe it or not, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Uh, okay. Um, if you could be any animal, what would it be? Uh, an orangutan. Why an orangutan? Because uh, I think they're really cool, and they have a great time climbing. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you... Do you lean more towards chocolate or, or candy, like sweet, sugary? Oh, chocolate, chocolate, and, and dark, bitter okay. chocolate. Oh, that was my next yeah. question. What type of chocolate? Oh, yeah, like 65% Okay. Higher, like okay. up to 90. <laughs> On a scale from 1 to 10, how good were your kids' drawings when they were growing up? Oh, I still have some on my wall in my oh, office. Yes. No, I, my kids were awesome artists. And we have, we have some of their artwork, in fact, on our walls at home. Uh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Most iconic movie quote. Hmm. Get off my lawn. Oh, there we go. Okay. Would you rather dive to the deepest depths of the ocean or climb to the tallest peaks? Oh, climbing tallest peaks for sure. What's the tallest mountain you've climbed before? I would have to say in the Rockies. Okay. So maybe okay. like you know twelve thousand or something. Ooh, that's pretty high. Okay. Maybe eleven. What is the average length of an uncooked spaghetti noodle? Um, I would say about fourteen inches. Oh, you're close. It's about eleven inches. Okay. You have fifteen seconds to name as many vice presidents of the U.S. as you can. Oh. Go. Okay. So all right, let's uh, Mike Pence. <laughs> there you and, go. Uh, got. Um, <clears throat> Dick Cheney, Spiro Agnew, Michael uh, Hubert Humphrey, uh, Lyndon Johnson, two, uh, Andrew one. Johnson. All right, all right, so. not too bad. <laughs> um, you often ride your bike to work. Where is one place in the world you'd really like to ride? I would love to to bike in the American Southwest. Ooh, I think that'd okay. be a, just a beautiful area to be. Not not in the summer, obviously. Yes, yes, good call. On most landline phone keypads, there are three letters associated with a single number. Which letters are on the number five on a phone? Oh, man, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I have no, okay. no idea. It'd be somewhere around the, like, what, uh, KLM or something. Ooh, very, uh, JKL. Okay, you were very close. close. <laughs> All right. Um, which weighs more, 
a pound of cotton or a pound of lead? They both weigh a pound. What if I told you the cotton's wet? Uh, they still both weigh a pound. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you own any pets and what are their names if you do? No, we have been a pet-free household for the most part. We did have guinea pigs for a while, but I'm allergic to cats. Ah, and, okay. Uh, yeah, we just travel too much to own a dog. Ah, okay. So we are now approaching the top of Bascom Hill. I have one more question for you. We talked about your love of beer. You have 30 seconds to describe your favorite beer with as many adjectives as you can. Ooh, no, that, that is a tough one. Uh, okay, so I would have to go with a, a hazy IPA. Okay. Yeah, that has the, the quality that, you know, it, it's clear and lighter, but it has that hazy kind of unfiltered quality to it. it has a citrusy kind of aroma, but that really nice bitter bite okay. to it. When you take that the, the drink, that you've got that aftertaste of that bitterness, with it. a lot of people hate about hops, yeah, but that's yeah. one of my favorite things about a good IPA. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Thanks, David. This All has right. been a really good episode of 1050 Bascom. Thanks for taking the time to, to come and speak with us. All right, very good. It's, it's a lot of fun. Cool.